Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 6. In this chapter, chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, there are two attempts to bring the ark to Jerusalem. This provides a striking display of God for us to see. Both the terror of God in the first 11 verses today and then the ecstasy of God that we see in the last half of this chapter, verses 12 through 23. In each attempt, we see great joy as the ark is brought You see that in verse 5, and then in the second second case, verse 14 and 15. And then great tragedy, we see that in each of these cases. And then David's reaction, we also see in each of these cases. In the first attempt, David's anger and fear with what happens. And the second attempt, David's worship and his generosity. Each section ends with what happens in a particular house. In today's passage, in Obed-Edom's house, and we see blessing. And in the second case, in David's. And we see contempt there. But it's because of Michael. Today we'll look at the first attempt in the first 11 verses of chapter 6. So if you are able, please stand as I read 2 Samuel 6 verses 1 through 11 from the English Standard Version. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahiel went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there, because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. 
And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. may be seated. Well, in verses 1 and 2, we see a huge gathering of people gathered there to escort the ark out of Kiriath-Jerim, another name for the Baal Judah, which we read here in our text. Same place. And then to the city of David, which you remember he conquered. 30,000 soldiers plus everyone else. 1 Samuel 7 verse 2 tells us the ark was in the house of Abinadab on the hill for 20 years. Do you remember why it was there? Wasn't that long ago. Why was it there? The Philistines had actually captured the ark before Saul became king back in 1 Samuel 4, but had sent the ark back. Do you remember why? because so many of their people were being afflicted by its presence in their land. They'd sent it off, being pulled by two milk cows in 1 Samuel 6, and they let it go its way, saying, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Bet Shemesh, then it is he, the God of Israel, who has done this great harm to us. And that's exactly where it went. But some of the men of Bet Shemesh looked upon the ark of the Lord, looked upon it, and were struck down, 70 of them, 1 Samuel 6, 19. So they asked the man, the men of Kiriath-Jerim to come and take the ark to their town. So now we need to make sure that we understand what the ark represents. The specifications for its construction are found in Exodus chapter 25, verses 10 through 22. It's a rectangular chest made of acacia wood, three and three-quarter feet long, and two and a quarter feet wide and high. Gold-plated, inside and out. The mercy seat, the place of propitiatory atonement, was the pure gold covering plate over the top of the chest. And at the two ends of the mercy seat and facing each other were the two golden cherubim, angels, with wings overshadowing the gold mercy seat with their faces toward it. Inside the ark, the Ten Commandments. So in size, it's not quite exactly this, but it's close. One insight into the ark's significance can be gleaned from Moses' wilderness prayer in Numbers 10 Verses 35 and 36. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise or advance, O Lord, 
Let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested, or halted, he said, Return, O Lord, to the ten thousand thousands of Israel's. Do you see the significance here? The ark was very closely identified with the Lord's presence. So much so that when the ark set out to lead Israel, Moses would say, Arise, advance, O Lord. And when they'd stop, Moses would say, Return, O Lord. This does not mean that the ark was an image of God, but rather that the ark signified God's presence. Signified the Lord's rulership, called by the name of the Lord of hosts. We see in our passage today, verse 2, king. It signified the Lord's reconciliation. The day of atonement, the blood of the sin offering was sprinkled on the lid, the top, the mercy seat. In other words, the blood of the acceptable sacrifice was the only thing that could come between God, whose presence above, look down on the Ten Commandments inside, we're guilty, who, what can cover our sin? The blood that's spread on the top. It's a great picture. Couldn't get any better. Shouldn't surprise us. God designed it. Priest. First, it signifies his rulership as king, the Lord's reconciliation. Priest. What's left? Well, the Lord's revelation, the Ten Commandments inside. Also, the place where Moses would receive additional instructions. We see that in Exodus 25, 22. In other words, do you see the type, what the picture is here of Christ? King, priest, prophet. In 1 Chronicles 28, verse 2, David calls the ark the footstool of our God. Again, signifying his presence. So what is David saying by wanting to bring the ark back to Zion? To Zion. Hadn't been there before. To Zion. That the Lord's presence must be the central focus in the reality of David's kingdom. So this is meant to teach the people, to show the people, to gather the people together, to see that the most important thing about them about the kingdom that David is now ruling, is what? The Lord's presence is the most important thing. Which the people tended to ignore and or forget and many times fear in those 40 years of wilderness wandering before they came into the land. So the Lord's presence must be the central focus and the reality of David's kingdom, and who had largely ignored the ark's absence all the time that he was ruling? Yeah, King Saul. He completely ignored the fact that it was at somebody's house away from where he was ruling. 1 Chronicles 13.3, David said, Then let us bring again the ark of our God to us, 
And here's the, here's the clincher. For we did not seek him in the days of Saul. So what Saul did by ignoring it was actually a picture of the attitude of the people in general during his rule. Not just Saul, but the people. You could say that's a somewhat subtle message, but not really. God's people cannot be sustained by focusing on and majoring on just the battles, their enemies. Yes, the Philistines and the Jebusites who had inhabited Jerusalem needed to be defeated, but God's people cannot thrive and grow just by going from one battle to another. They must seek God's face. Now, immediately we can see all sorts of warnings, parallels, lessons to the evangelical church today, can we not? You know, if you're trying to get people, just here, bodies, anywhere, any church, there's nothing that rally people like victory in battle. And a lot of times that doesn't last very long, does it? And God knows that. He knows that that's not the key. The key is his presence and the people honoring and worshiping him. David knew that he himself, the people he was ruling, the kingdom, they must seek God's face. And so how does the evangelical church deal with this? Have much of the church lost sight of the very same thing? This is not a new issue. We, this has been going on since day one, ignoring God's presence. How many programs and strategies are focused on the latest moral, ethical, social, cultural, political emergency at the expense of seeking God's face? It's not saying that those things are not important and we don't need the direction. We do. It's training. It's discipline. But many times it's at the expense of seeking God himself. It's relatively easy to mobilize people around a just cause because of a perceived emergency. It also sells a lot of books. Crises do stimulate us to action, but we must understand that they do not sustain life. We must never depend on the motivation of the latest cause to give us life. So you should be asking yourself, I should be asking myself whether I'm really more sold out to the Lord when there's some crisis going on, something that is getting our attention so much that, yeah, I'll rally the troops, count, count them. We've got the people now. We live in such a day, go from one to another. Ask yourselves what it is that gets you excited about your faith. And if you just stop a minute, you'll probably, as one, all of us, just hang our heads in shame. What is it that gets you excited about your faith? Is it mainly the rush of being a part of something, some exciting cause? 
we can't ignore the enemies in our world. But we must not be absorbed by them. We cannot fight the war if we are not a people who know the importance of worship, both individually and corporately. The real question is not who's against us, but who's with us. Also, don't miss how Jesus Christ fulfills all that the ark signifies, which we mentioned earlier. It points directly to Christ. We just noted how the ark signifies the Lord's rulership. Isn't Christ our king as he brought us to himself, as he rules and defends us, as he restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies? What about the Lord's reconciliation? Isn't Christ the high priest who both offers the sacrifice for sin and is the sacrifice? bringing his own blood into the sanctuary? And the Lord's revelation, isn't Christ the prophet who reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation? One of my favorite parts in the book of Hebrews is Hebrews 9.12 that speaks to this, how this points to Christ, especially in this verse about his reconciliation. We read there, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. So how can I keep the Lord's presence central in my life? How can we keep the Lord's presence central in this church? By turning our eyes upon Jesus. This is not just some phrase. It's not just a lyric in a song. This is Hebrews 12.2. Let me read verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight or hindrance or encumbrance and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and protector of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Turning our eyes upon Jesus. Just as David sought to make the Lord's presence the central focus and the reality of the Davidic kingdom, I mean, he he did this immediately, as soon as he could, after securing the power and, and conquering the city of David, that part of Jerusalem where the Jebusites has held control. But by bringing the ark to Jerusalem, it's what he wanted to do. The very thing that God had provided that signified his presence, man, he wanted to make this foremost right here. Before our face, look to Jesus. For the nation, it was so important. So we must realize that Jesus must be the central focus and the reality of our individual and corporate life. So let's look at this first attempt to bring the ark back 
We've read the first 11 verses. Here as we start looking at verse 3, we're at Kiriath-Jerim. What a spectacle. The ark was traveling on a new cart, we read in verse 3. Pulled by oxen, with Uzzah and Heo serving as attendants. The people were celebrating. Boy, they weren't just kind of celebrating. They were celebrating. Rejoicing before God with all their might, we read in a parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 13, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals, we read in our passage, verse 5. But this great, loud rejoicing suddenly stopped as everyone realized that Uzzah had been struck by the Lord and died right there by the ark. What happened? The joy had turned to tragedy. The oxen had stumbled. And in an effort to keep the ark from falling off the cart to the ground, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark and took hold of it. Verse 6. Verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Does this offend you? After all, Uzzah was only trying to help. Was he supposed to just let the oxen bounce the ark right off the cart? Why didn't the Lord cut Uzzah some slack here? Why the severity? We should be angry too, shouldn't we? As David was in verse 8. That's how he responded. Or should we be afraid? As David became in verse 9. Well, one commentator sums this up, these questions like this. For me, passages like this are evidence of the supernatural origin and trustworthiness of the Bible. This Uzzah story goes so against the grain of our preferences. We would never have invented a God like this. Not if we want to win converts and influence people. This God is not very marketable. Anyone who says the God of the Bible is merely a projection of our wish fulfillment. Anybody heard that? I heard it all the time in college. Anybody who says that hasn't read the Bible. So what was the problem here? What was the error? Long ago, God had given very, very specific instructions to Moses and the priests about how the ark was supposed to be transported. Numbers 4 and chapter 7. The rules were really pretty simple. No touch, no look, no cart. Sums them up. The priests were supposed to cover the ark and the other sacred items as well. Then they'd assign Levites of the Korathite clan to carry it, so no carts were allowed. 
They did this by using special poles that went through rings on the side of the ark. Just picture rings on each corner and a long pole on each side. That way, whoever the priests who were carrying it did not touch the ark. No poles. Numbers 4, verse 15 and 20 specifically says that the sacred items were to be covered so the Korathites were not to touch or look upon them lest they die. Why the rules, though? The Lord did not want them to die. So his kindness is written all over these warnings. Now, digest that for a second. The Lord kindly gave them the rules so they wouldn't die. And you're going, well, why would they die? Because if this signifies the holy presence of God Almighty to his people, holiness can have nothing to do with sin, which is why Jesus had to come, why the rituals pointed to a blood sacrifice. Starting to make a little sense. What God did was not arbitrary cruelty. They knew better. And just 20 years before, 70 men of Beth Shemesh had died. Why? Do you remember? Because they looked upon it. The covering was off. Which was why the people there asked the men of the other town, Kiriath-Jerim, to take it. And we read in verses 8 and 9 in our passage, notice that the text says the Lord has burst forth against Uzzah, has broken out. This is the same root verb that's used repeatedly in chapter 5, the previous chapter, to describe the Lord bursting forth, breaking out against the Philistines. In chapter 5, the Lord burst through forth against David's enemies, In this chapter, the Lord burst through or forth against David's friends. The Lord may break out against the Philistines or Israel. God's lethal holiness levels both pagans and churchmen. Another commentator writes, once again, deity has broken loose with an incredible power and unexpectedness which petrifies a mortal. And this time is not in favor of David's undertaking, but to its detriment. Now, you and I can object and cry foul if we like, but the application is here. You do dare trifle with a God who is both real and holy. The Lord is not your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. We do sometimes act very foolishly because we don't really know with whom we are dealing. Have we forgotten? This is a great way to say it. Have we forgotten the heat in God's holiness? 
No, we do not need to be terrified, but having a reverential awe and respect or fear probably is taking on some added meaning right now for many of us to be reminded of this. The God here in 2 Samuel 6, are you ready? Is the same God you meet in the New Testament. Acts 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira were struck down by the Lord for lying to both the church and to God. In 1 Corinthians 11, verses 30 and 31, some of the Corinthians were weak and ill and some died. And we read, why? For taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy matter. Manner. In Hebrews 10, 26-31 is that passage that most of us would rather just skip. I don't know if you remember, but we didn't skip it. Hebrews 10, 24, 26-31. That's the one, if we go on sinning deliberately... Rejecting Christ deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is a picture of someone who claims, proclaims to be a Christian and probably involved, but doesn't really know the Lord. And their life betrays them because of the way they live. Now, is that it in the New Testament? Any other examples? Here's the clincher. In a book of the New Testament, the Lord God Almighty pictures the church by writing letters to seven real churches. Revelation 2 and 3. How many of those seven churches did the Lord threaten with judgment? Do you know? Five out of seven. There's only two that he did not threaten judgment. What does that mean? He threatened judgment to five out of seven if they don't repent of whatever they were compromising the truth with. Whatever they were doing. I'm going to read those judgments in just a second. Some people have actually tried to write papers and books saying, well, this is an eternal law. If you get the proportion, you know, two out of seven churches that call themselves Christian are actually, you know, pretty much on track with how they worship and what they're doing. Can't take it quite that far. But this is a very, very interesting picture, is it not? Let me look. If you want to turn to Revelation 2 and 3, I'm just going to read the judgments. To the church at Ephesus, remember the one that had abandoned the love that they had first? Christ says, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. No more church at Ephesus if they don't repent. 
The second church, Smyrna, there's no threat of judgment. Third church, Pergamum. They were in a place where Satan's hold was strong in their community and land. They were commended for holding fast Christ's name and not denying faith. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who basically taught that you could become a Christian and then continue living like the rest of a moral Ephesus did. Or the Nicolaitans, who were libertarians, antinomians, no law, no anything, live any way you want. Know any churches like that? Oh, man. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The fourth church, Theatira. I know your works, your love and faith, your service, your patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But this I have against you, that you tolerate the woman who? Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she didn't. Those who are basically in her bed, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Unless they repent of her works, I will strike her children dead so that I so that all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart. The fifth church, Sardis. I know your works. You have a reputation being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember, keep what you know is true and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. The sixth church, Philadelphia, no judgment. The seventh church, Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. In other words, I'd rather you be either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. That is a very nice translation. It means vomit. I am rich. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and wretched and pitiable, poor and blind. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So repent. Same God. Unchangeable. About verse 7 in our passage here in 2 Samuel 6. While Uzzah's motivation were likely good, I mean, how many of us would have gone, oh no, it's falling. I've got to keep it from falling. He probably didn't want the ark to get dirty. And he foolishly presumed his sinful hands were cleaner than the ground. Did you hear that? 
he presumed that he was cleaner than the dirt. He presumed wrong. A good intention will not justify a bad action. God has made known the actions and the attitudes that please him. When we believe that we can serve him by our own understanding, we are in danger of judgment. Back in, in 1 Samuel 6, when the men of Beth Shemesh looked upon the ark and died, the people of the town in obvious anguish cry out, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? That question was the climax of that whole passage and story about the Philistine capture of the ark and their sending it back. The point that no one is able to stand against God's judgment. And this applied to the people outside the covenant as well as those under the covenant. In other words, presumption before God is unacceptable, which is why we have this book. If our creative ideas are presumption and go against what the word of God teaches, we are in serious danger. If your leaders follow that path, all of you are in serious danger. If I presume something to be true about God that is not true about God, then I am placing myself in harm's way because like Uzzah, I may just react to a situation without that reaction being the result of a true perception of the situation. Do you get that? If we don't know the word of God well enough to know what is true and not true about God, then we may get used to thinking a certain way acting or being willing to act a certain way that he forbids because we don't know the word of God well enough to be able to think through it and discern a proper action that the Holy Spirit will empower. And when we do that, we put all of ourselves in danger, which is a picture of the church at large today in way too many cases. Uzzah thought that dirt was somehow dirtier than himself. And in dealing with the ark, which signified the very presence of God, presuming himself to be clean, there was a fatal mistake. Note that Uzzah's ultimate salvation is not what's at stake here. It's a temporal judgment which he suffers. That doesn't mean, though, that we should stop shaking about it. This is meant to get our attention. It's meant to stir us up, to get the clouds out of the way and see that our God is holy. He didn't just say, hey, they're trying. I'll forgive them. He couldn't. His just nature would not allow that. Sin had to be paid for. Its penalty is death. So he did what we couldn't do. He sent his own son because he knew we couldn't live up to that standard once sin had entered man's hearts. Incredible. When people see us, the biggest difference should be what? Not us. I got 13 righteous merit badges for filling out 
doing all this stuff, serving here and there, quoting scripture, all that is important. But what he should see is us lifting the Lord up by the way that we behave, by the way we talk, by what we believe in, by what we stand for, to show that there is a God who is holy and will judge the world. That's what's different, because nobody else does. People that do not know Christ do not hold up anything but themselves or some cause or an idea that they're acclaimed, you know, attached to. We don't know when or if the Lord will do this breakout or burst forth in His holiness to deal with sin and presumption, even in His own church. We don't know what happened to some of those churches that we read. We know some of them just kind of died. But this was, those were threats of judgment if they didn't do what? Every one of them, repent. He's shown us in his word that he does burst forth and in his holiness and righteousness and truth. And boy, that's loud and clear here. So we must not mischaracterize the God who saves us whom we serve by just removing from our thinking and thus our vocabulary the heat of his holiness. It's a part of the message. This is part of what we know about the Lord. And you put that into the person of Christ. And that's why his grace to us in Christ is amazing. Because the only one who can't, who's been on earth that has been holy is the one who paid the sacrifice for those who believe in him. That's it. And then in verse 10 and 11. So David wasn't willing to take the ark into the city of David. So David needs some time to cool off here, doesn't he? And he, he takes it. But God's not through with what he wants to teach about himself through what signifies his presence here in the Old Testament, the ark. The rest of chapter 6, see, these are together. We can't get to this one today. But it is so gracious of the Lord to put in this one chapter, both attempts, right next to each other, following one another, the second attempt. The question is, does David learn this lesson, and does he get to the point of not being angry and blaming God? Yes. The rest of this chapter sees David attempting to again bring the ark to Jerusalem. That tells you something about David, doesn't it? What would you or I have probably done? I know this is important, to have the presence of God primary in the kingdom and to have it here where, where the capital is, where you know, hopefully there will be a temple built here sometime, blah, blah, blah. But man... I don't want to deal with this. Let's ship it back to one of those little towns, you know, in the panhandle. And just get it out of everywhere. There's just cows and everything up there. Just get it away so nobody else will die. Isn't that what most of us would have done? What the guys did earlier? Ignore him, which is 
not going to solve anything. But this king courageously lets God deal with his heart. And he believes God enough in the instructions that he has in the books of the law that he trusts God to bring it in correctly. And when we read that next chapter, he is not watching this happen like this. Oh, man. Okay, we got guys carrying it now. We got it covered. The people are going crazy. But everybody's going, is, is God going to break forth again? We see David next week doing exactly the opposite. He's rejoicing because he knows that obedience is taking place as the light comes in. I, I think it's important to mention that today just to realize that these pictures of our Lord go together because we know that people err on one side or the other all the time. We do. So he was very careful the next time with how it's done according to the Lord's instruction. And we also notice that if anything... The joy and the celebration and the rejoicing, and this is what's I think is really cool. The second time, all the noise, the joy, and the celebration increased because they were obeying. Didn't that just seem counterintuitive to you? If you obey, what's your picture? Like that? It increased. They could express their joy and their worship to the Lord as they were bringing the, the, the thing that signified his very presence into the capital because they were obeying and their leader led them in doing that. What a great picture. In other words, the fear, verse 9, doesn't inhibit the joy of, or the ability to express joy. Instead, it sets him and the people free. God's grace and our grateful obedience to him sets us free to be who he made us to be before him. To obey him joyfully. And that's what we get to see in the rest of this chapter. And we'll look at that next week. So living in the presence of God means tears of repentance go hand in hand with expressions of exuberant joy and thanksgiving hand in hand most of us probably need the the warning for the last church you're neither hot nor cold you're trying to be the lukewarm cool person all the time Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear, period. No, it doesn't. It says, Serve the Lord with fear, rejoice with trembling. Does this help with how you do that and what that means? Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Help me do that, will you? Let's help each other do that. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that you are unchangeable.
that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that as we say that, it makes us think of your characteristics that you communicate to us through your word, especially in the, in the life and death of your son. Help us understand the big picture of putting this together. We just go one way or the other so fast, Lord, you know that. Help us stand firm on your word so that we are free in your grace to obey, proclaim, worship, enjoy the blessings of life, enjoy you forever. We ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? I'm going to read part of 1 Chronicles 16. This is David's song of thanks. Ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in splendor, in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is David's song of thanks as the ark entered. Amen. You're dismissed.